I had had one half of a beer and that my friend doesn't drink at all. And we were sitting there and suddenly both of us saw this very silvery, shiny sort of vehicle of sorts. All of a sudden we heard a droning and we looked up and I swear to God, a gigantic flying saucer went slowly over our head from one side of the horizon to the other. Still daylight. I look up. Whoa, red orb shift. Whoa, another one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven out of the blue. My nephew and I observed seven orbs in the sky, reddish orbs traveling in a formation. They were there about a minute, and then they just disappeared like a light went off. A light suddenly appeared, zooming up from the horizon, where it stayed, just hovered for about two hours, and then zoomed off again. It's just unexplainable to me. Every year... Thousands of people report seeing something in the sky they just can't explain. These phenomena aren't just the stuff of science fiction like Jordan Peele's genre-bending film Nope. The U.S. government has acknowledged they're real. In May, Navy intelligence officers testified before Congress about a military database that tracks UAPs, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. That database includes some reported 400 sightings by Navy and Air Force crews. Officials say there's no evidence of aliens, even though there are some instances they can't explain. Last month, the Pentagon announced a new office to track these phenomena. It's called the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or AARO. What might we learn, and what does our obsession with unidentified flying objects say about who we are? We'll answer all those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Have your questions answered on future shows by downloading the 1A Box Pop app and leaving a voicemail. Let's jump into the conversation. Joining us now is Shane Harris. He's an intelligence and national security reporter for The Washington Post. He's also the host of the national security podcast, Chatter. Shane, it's always great to have you. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. And Kate Dorsch. She's a technology and science historian and a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Kate, welcome to the program. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me. So let's get some terminology out of the way. Kate, there are flying saucers, UFOs, and UAPs. Walk us through which what each of these terms mean. Historically speaking, uh, flying saucers typically stand for a technological aerial device that is manned. There is a pilot driving it. A UFO is slightly more ambiguous. It suggests that there is a material object that is responsible for the sighting that you're having, but you can't particularly identify exactly what it is. It might be manned, it might not be manned, um, but there is a sort of material thing there. UAP, now the term of art, uh, is the most ambiguous and refers to any kind of unidentified aerial phenomena which says, like, includes the idea that there might not be an actual material object behind the sighting. Now, Shane, as we said earlier, the Pentagon has this new office to track what it calls UAPs. It's called the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. What do we know about the scope of this office's work? Well, it seems pretty broad, and its goal is essentially to try and integrate all of the different pockets or areas, if you will, across the Defense Department and parts of the intelligence community would be in that as well, that are tracking sightings that are in some cases trying to record and categorize or catalog them. And what they want to do is bring this all together 
kind of in, you know, one central place, which is, you know, the often government initiatives are aimed at trying to get their arms around all of the different data sets that are out there. And what's important, too, is they're not just looking in this instance at things that move through the air. They would also be looking at things that could be moving through water or kind of other uh, surfaces, maybe even in space, to try and get as full a picture as they possibly can, because up to now, it's been rather fragmentary. Reports have been sort of sporadic, and they haven't always been captured and cataloged very well. Now, we did reach out to the Pentagon's new office for this conversation and didn't hear back, but the invitation does stand. Uh, This isn't the first time in recent years that the Pentagon has investigated these phenomena. In 2020, leaked footage of UAP sightings prompted the Defense Department to declassify three other videos from Navy pilots who reported close encounters with UAPs. Here's audio from one of those videos. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, that thing, dude. That's not our LNS, though, is it? It's not. That is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's like another thing, it's rotating. Kate, what did we learn from these materials? That's a great question. Um, I think we learned that Navy pilots had an experience that they couldn't explain, um, that multiple pilots had that experience, that we had sensor data about that, and that suggests that there was some sort of object or phenomenon behind that sighting. Um, As for what we, the American public, learned, uh, very little. Uh, which tends to be the case when we're looking at these military sightings, these sightings that have been made by military professionals and other personnel, pilots, etc. But we did learn that sightings by military personnel continue. Shane, why this big release in 2020? Well, I think that there was you had a couple of forces behind this. There was actually some, you know, a really groundbreaking uh, New York Times story uh, that came out uh, in 2017 that actually revealed that there was the, the Pentagon program that had been studying uh, some of these sightings and actually had some of the videos. And I think that gave people kind of <clears throat> a window into the fact that the military was paying attention to this and was tracking it. And over time, you know, lawmakers became very interested in this. Uh, and ultimately, what you saw was this, I think it's fair to call it sort of a push really from Congress as well for the government to be more open about what it was seeing and to try and actually use its own resources to identify and study these things. So we actually then saw it culminated in a big report from the intelligence community a year ago where they weighed in on, on what, they were, what they were seeing in about 140 different cases. So there's been this push for transparency. Uh, notably, Harry Reid, when he was in the Senate, was a big proponent of the military and the Pentagon studying this. Uh, but I think think that part of this has to do with just these videos uh, coming out, uh, either being declassified or put out in the media and uh, creating this, you know, real big public interest around this, particularly because these pilots who were seeing this in these instances are, you know, presumed to be quite credible witnesses. I mean, up until 2020, how common was it for military personnel to report a UAP sighting, let alone for the Defense Department to authenticate it, Shane? Uh, you would, if you talk to people who've served in the military and who have researched the history of UFOs, I think what you would find is there's probably a lot of aviators and pilots out there who have seen things when they're out flying who have been very reluctant historically to talk about it. Um, you know, there was a great, there's always been a great stigma. This is true for, I think, for commercial aircraft pilots as well, uh, that, you know, you can be teased or ridiculed. And if you think about it from the military's point of view, these are people who we train to fly multi-million dollar aircraft if they're coming back to their commanding 
officer and saying, I'm seeing something in the sky. It might raise questions about their ability to fly properly. So there was really a real stigma attached to it. And it's once the military started saying, particularly the Navy saying, look, we want you to report these things, you pilots or anyone who's out there spotting this, to document it. They're trying to kind of get that stigma lifted off Mm -hmm. because they feel that there's a national security interest in knowing what these objects are. Well, in May, Congress held its first hearing about UAPs in over 50 years. Here's Scott Bray, Deputy Director of Navy Intelligence, responding to questions from Representative Adam Schiff, a Democrat from California. What are we observing? Uh, What you see here uh, is um, uh, aircraft that is uh, operating in a a U.S. Navy uh, training range uh, that has observed a spherical object uh, in that area. Uh, And as they fly by it, they take a video. You see a... um, it looks uh, reflective in this video, somewhat reflective, uh, and it quickly passes by uh, the cockpit of the uh, of the aircraft. And is this one of the phenomena that we can't explain? I do not have an explanation for what this this specific uh, uh, object is. Shane, briefly, what stood out for for you from the session? Oh, I thought it was just remarkable that you had two senior Pentagon officers talking about a subject that, you know, didn't veer into discussions of aliens or the X-Files, and they tried to keep it as sober as possible and really root it in the context of national security. Um, of course, all of that was lingering in the background, and they, they did kind of nod to that, which was helpful in cutting some of the tension in that hearing. And let's bring another voice into the conversation. Joining us now is Seth Shostak. He's a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. That's a nonprofit organization researching the possibility of life beyond Earth. Seth, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Jen. So I want to start by getting your reaction to the government's increased public attention toward UAPs. Why do you think this information is being released now? Well, it seems to be a periodic uh, activity of the military because, of course, the military is always interested to know what might be up there. I mean, you know, they're not going to send the fighter jets up into the sky if there's something up there they don't know about, right? There are 100,000 commercial flights every day. You wouldn't want to be on one of them if there was something that didn't file a flight plan. So I, th- I think that that's a lot of it. Of course, there's the uh, obsession with UFOs, too. Uh, One-third of the American public believes we're being visited by aliens. That's 100 million people. Now, how much tension is there between scientists like yourself who are actively doing this work and government agencies that have all this classified data? Well, I don't think that there's too much in in terms of direct tension because, you know, science works with uh, public data, right? The data are not kept secret. There's no secrecy in science. If there is, you probably didn't get tenure. So, <laughs> so you know, they're pretty open about it. And the government, on the other hand, does tend to keep secrets. That makes it a little harder for people to investigate these things scientifically. But on the other hand, after the war, right, the late 40s, early 50s, the U.S. military got very interested in these reports, and uh, they had, you know, I think you've named some of them Project Sign, Project Blue Book, Project Grudge, Project This, Project That. And they did that for more than 10 years, something like 15 years. They had an office open somewhere in D.C. that would take these reports and try and figure out something from them. And eventually, they got rid of the two employees because they said they weren't learning anything interesting. So I, I, this is a long-standing interest And I think uh, the fact that it's uh, revived is probably, well, it's hard to say. My guess is that it's probably due to the media more than to anything else. 
51% of Americans believe UAPs reported by military personnel are definitely or probably evidence of intelligent alien life. That's according to a Pew poll from last year. Seth, you're currently researching the possibility of life beyond Earth. What have you discovered so far? Well, we have not found the aliens. I, I hate to <laughs> hate to say it, Jen, but the facts are we don't know about any biology beyond Earth. I mean, not even a microbe on Mars. Now, we think Mars might have microbes, um, more likely had microbes, but we haven't yet found that evidence. That probably will change in the next 20 years, but that's my speculation. And if it doesn't change in the next 20 years, I'll buy you a Starbucks. But <laughs> the, 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 the facts are that we now have the kind of equipment that would allow us to do that. But in terms of finding aliens, keep in mind that aliens are, you know, they're, they're not from Mars or Jupiter or any, any planet in our solar system. The conditions on those worlds are not adequate to produce complex, intelligent life. So, you know, they have to come from somebody else's star system, and that immediately raises a, a couple of questions that are really hard to answer. In particular, how, how do they get here? I mean, our fastest rockets take 75,000 years to get here from the nearest other star. Right. Okay, maybe they have faster rockets, but that's a long ride in a middle seat eating pretzels, right? And so they have to have some motivation to do that. And it's very unclear what could possibly entice them to Earth other than maybe, I don't know, reality television. I mean, I, I just don't know. So you but, sound very the, you sound very skeptical. I mean, do you believe sentient life forms exist beyond Earth? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't keep this job otherwise, because that's what we're looking for. And uh, to be honest, the, you know, the remuneration isn't great. So if I didn't believe in the premise, I wouldn't do it. But that's a lot different than saying they're here, mm. right? It's one thing to say, you know, there might be very strange animals in this continent in the southern hemisphere, you know, in the east. Uh, maybe animals that have long noses that can pick up peanuts or who knows. You could speculate till the cows return, Shay knew. But, you know, it's not an unreasonable speculation because you haven't been there. Now, that's the situation. There are uh, about a trillion planets in our galaxy, a trillion that's just our galaxy. There are a couple of hundred billion other galaxies we can see. So there's all this real estate. And so if the only thinking beings in all this enormous amount of real estate is us, then you're really special. And normally in science, if you think you're really special, you're probably wrong. <laughs> I'm curious what your research looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, well, we're not looking up at the sky. We leave that to others. Uh, there, by the way, I should mention, there are plenty of people that are looking up at the sky. I was just uh, giving a talk at an uh, amateur astronomer's convention in, uh, in Albuquerque, and you know, these people's idea of fun is to take their telescopes out at night and look at the planets or the moon or nebulae or whatever, and there are hundreds of thousands of people like this every year. They never see alien craft. And their practice understanding what they see in the sky. So that, that strikes me as something interesting. The other thing is the government has, you know, radars uh, in Colorado and elsewhere that can find a, a baseball 200 miles up. They don't find anything. I'll give you a third example just because you're finding this all kind of tedious. But, you know, I go onto Google Earth and I can find my car parked in my driveway. Right. Google Earth, which is not a defense department uh, reconnaissance, it's just a commercial service, it can see my car. Now, if it can see my car, it could see a saucer that's at least the size of my car. They never do. So these kinds of uh, you know, facts, if you will, about the UFO phenomenon say to me, 
well, we're not actually being visited by alien craft. Uh, Kate, when did the cultural phenomenon around UFOs in the U.S. first begin? Almost immediately. So the first flying saucer sightings or UFO sightings uh, occurred in late June of 1947. And if you follow public media, newspapers, and so on, you see the flying saucer craze picking up in advertising, actually, as early as, you know, early July, right around the 4th of July uh, of 1947. Uh, these, and of course, visitors from outer space, the sort of science fiction extraterrestrial stories far predate the flying saucer and the UFO of the 20th century. And so, you know, the, the zeitgeist, the Amer- American culture was really sort of primed for this extraterrestrial story. But it's also important to remember, 1947 is very, very near to the end of World War II and the dropping of the atomic bomb and the world experiencing an unprecedented acceleration in the development and progress of science and technology. The American public is just learning about a bunch of new technologies that American scientists and engineers have developed over the previous years. And so that atomic anxiety, that techno-scientific anxiety, paired with a a tradition in science fiction, um, has sort of primed the American consciousness to take these things and see them both as sort of techno-scientific threat and potentially um, invader or messiah from outer space. So what factors have kept the American public engaged around the idea of UFOs? Yeah, um, I think that, so this is my working theory, is that, um, again, you have to understand the flying saucer or the UFO of, again, the 20th century, the Cold War to today, as being a particularly techno-scientific object. They represent a technology and an understanding of science and the laws of reality that go beyond our own. You also have to remember that America in the 1950s, 1960s, sees itself as the leading superpower in science and technology. Concerns that the Soviets are catching up or surpassing us is met with a radical increase in science funding in the United States. When you understand yourself as being the preeminent power on the globe in that sense, when you meet a technology that you cannot explain or that seems to betray the laws of reality, the laws of physics, well, the only explanation is that it cannot be terrestrial because we Americans don't understand it and nobody else is capable of producing it. Therefore, it must be from beyond our atmosphere, from beyond our own planet. Shane, how much money is the U.S. investing in this research and what do we know about how that money is being spent? I think if you added it up, it's not a lot. I don't have the figure in front of me. We're talking, you know, in some millions of dollars. It's not hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, but really, I mean, I think the latest research and efforts have been geared at capturing and trying to catalog these eyewitness statements. Uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot to build a database. Uh, and NASA's spending a little bit of change on this as well. But this is not something that's the equivalent of what we would invest in, you know, building a new airplane or a new weapon. We'll be back with our discussion on UAPs in just a moment. And send us your questions for future shows, or just let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to our conversation on UAPs with this message from Daniel, who asks, Has Tom DeLonge's company to the Stars Academy had any influence on the government coming forward? Kate, can you tell us more about to the Stars and its influence? Yeah. um, So To the Stars is a private company uh, founded by Tom DeLonge, um, 
Bigelow, the aerospace guy and entrepreneur, um, a buddy of Harry Reid, um, and some others. And I would say that, no, I don't think To the Stars has really had any impact or influence on the United States military coming forward. Um, to the Stars, again, is a private institution, much like the National Investigations Committee for Aerial Phenomena was in the 50s and 60s. Um, they ostensibly are collecting their own data and doing their own analysis. Um, my understanding of the military coming forward and being more, um, shall we say, transparent about this whole thing, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is really just around a lot of the media coverage in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and elsewhere, um, and their own accountability to the United States Congress in terms of national security. Uh, so while I think To the Stars is an interesting um, business company to talk about, I don't think that they really have had any influence on how the United States government has responded to these sightings. Well, in June, NASA announced a new study into the origin of UAPs. We reached out to NASA to participate in this conversation and share more details about the new study. They declined to participate, but the invitation stands. Shane, what else do we know about this research endeavor? This is really interesting to me because, you know, NASA, of course, I mean, they study air and space. This is what they do. And they bring a real scientific heft and a bearing to this and are coming at it. They've said publicly, the person who's going to be leading this effort uh, with an open mind. I mean, they, they, they're not trying to disprove or prove anything. They want to see what resources they can bring from their agency to this question. Uh, look at the data. Maybe they'll come to different conclusions. Maybe they'll be able to be more definitive. But it's just very interesting to me as a reporter how the military sort of led the way in this. And now you see NASA saying, well, hold on a second. Like, we probably have something really important, baby, to say about this because you're sort of in our domain as well. So it's going to be really interesting to see if they arrive at any different conclusions than the intelligence community and the military have. Seth, what does NASA's involvement signal to you about attitudes toward UAPs in the science community? Well, I, I mean, I think the big advantage of having NASA look at it uh, at this phenomenon are twofold. One, of course, they do have a lot of expertise in understanding phenomena above our heads, okay? So there's that. There's the expertise. But beyond that, NASA's a public agency. You know, the James Webb Space Telescope is gearing up to take some fantastic uh, pictures and data that will teach us a lot about, you know, cosmology, other things like that. But the point is it's all publicly available. It has to be made publicly available. And the big bugaboo in this whole story since the 1940s in trying to understand what this UFO story really is, is that the public believes the government is covering up. But NASA doesn't cover up, and so maybe that'll help. They, they, they probably will claim that they are covering up, but at least it's not the military. The military has a vested interest in covering things up, and NASA doesn't. Shane, how does the U.S. compare to other countries in terms of where UAPs fall as a national security concern? Uh, so far, I think we're probably out in the lead on this right now in terms of, the, of, of publicly addressing it and talking about it uh, that way, which is not to say, obviously, that <clears throat> other governments might view it through a similar lens. I'm not aware, uh, and maybe Kate or Seth are, of any um, similar efforts of kind of, of the scale or at least of the public uh, uh, um, projection, you know, testimony, reports from intelligence agencies, this kinds of thing uh, that has come along uh, with this. But, you know, we, we can't be alone obviously, in thinking that, you know, an unidentified flying object in, you know, national airspace is potentially a threat. I think any number of governments would potentially view it that way. Uh, Kate, anything to add? Yeah, for sure. Um, 
obviously other nations have engaged in their own investigative pro like especially their militaries right have engaged in these sort of investigative projects um canada throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century has had a um decent ufo investigative project um there's much more focused on i think a sort of more scientific approach right less concerned with sort of the military applications military potential of this thing but definitely tied into cold war anxieties right um germany had its own france has had its own the soviets certainly were investigating these sightings um, although they're from, obviously, our insight into that right now is limited as more and more documents become available every year, the, uh, the data that's available to us from Soviet Russia is still deeply limited. Um, but we are getting some insight into the fact that they were investigating sightings over Russia and almost certainly still are. Um, I think that because these things represent in the age of aerial warfare, of aerial surveillance and so on, um, I think it would take a lot to convince me that most other nations don't have some sort of surveillance program in place, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, when 2017 rolled around and these stories started to drop, people were asking me, like, what's with them opening the stuff up again and starting to investigate again after so many decades of nothing? I don't think the United States military ever stopped investigating credible sightings. I think that they have an obligation to do so. Um, and to the stigma thing, you know, the, the United States military has been concerned about the UFO taboo and the UFO stigma since 1947. Um, the understanding on their part was always that their pilots and their military personnel represent experts, right? Trained experts, professional people uh, who need to be taken seriously when they report something that they are not familiar with or they have an experience that they can't explain, either for their own safety or for the safety of the country, right? And throughout these reports, you see military personnel complaining about the media and the sort of the spin-up of the media, the spin-up of the American public, and this taboo that is leading pilots and other credible witnesses to not report. Um, so to the extent to which this new effort creates an avenue for our trained military personnel to make credible reports, I'm all for that because it is always a national security issue. Um, I think we're all looking up all the time. Well, we got this tweet from one of you. You say, we just need better images, including high-res color stereoscopic cameras with automatic zoom. We could solve this very quickly with much better pictures. We just don't have any good data yet. We should, of course, remind people the James Webb Space Telescope launched in December, as you said, Seth, and it's already giving us an unprecedented look at the origin of the galaxy. What, if anything, Seth, do you think it could reveal about life beyond Earth? Yeah, well, actually, this approach is being taken by a fellow, an astronomer at uh, Harvard. He was, I think for six years, the head of the Harvard Astronomy Department. Uh, and uh, he's, he's a very clever guy. It was his thesis that Oumuamua, which was an object found, I don't know, five, 10 years ago uh, by astronomers, was not just a rock from somebody else's solar system, as was claimed, but was in fact a direct, uh, deliberately directed probe to our solar system. Now, you know, he gets a lot of pushback from people who study asteroids about that, but be that as it may, he has been raising money to build equipment to put on the roof of the Harvard Astronomy Department with all sorts of cameras, radio equipment, and uh, sound equipment to try and make high-quality observations of any UAPs that uh, deign to visit Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
And he's serious about this, and he has some very, very good people working on that. And uh, maybe that's the right approach to say, look, we can, we can, you know, talk about this till we're blue in the physiognomy, but, you know, maybe the thing to do is do a better experiment. And, and with the, the James Webb Space Telescope, what, how effective of a tool is that for helping us learn if there's life beyond Earth? Well, it, it's, a, it's valuable in two ways. One, it can, if you will, sample the atmospheric content of planets around other stars, at least some of them, right? They have to be fairly close. They are very technical requirements. But, you know, if, if it can, if you will, smell the atmospheres of some other planet and it smells methane and oxygen, well, those are clues to biology, right? Mars doesn't have any oxygen in the atmosphere. We do because of photosynthesis. So if you were to find a planet that had, you know, the right combination of gases, that would be very strong evidence that you'd found a planet with life. But the other thing that may be more interesting in the present context is that James Webb could find things such as what are called Dyson swarms, giant constructions that a society a million years more advanced than us could be building to collect energy or for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, it's not something that goes away. It's something that's always there. It's like the pyramids. You can find the pharaohs of Egypt even though they're all dead now, because you can find the pyramids. That's Seth Shostak. He's a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. That's a nonprofit organization researching the possibility of life beyond Earth. Also with us today, Shane Harris. He's an intelligence and national security reporter for The Washington Post. He's also the host of the national security podcast, Chatter. And Kate Dorsch. She's a science and technology historian and a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Seth, Shane, Kate, thanks for your time. Today's producer was Katherine Fink. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.